Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday morning worship service. We are aiming together to remember, exalt, and set our attention on Jesus. Amen? Amen. So that's what I'm inviting you to do right here on the get-go, that we are aiming to exalt Jesus together today. So uh, just an encouragement because I don't know about you, but most everywhere else in the world I'm not encouraged to do this, but to set my attention, my affection on Christ. Let's also say this, happy Mother's Day. We all agree, where would we be without our moms? Where would we be in our lives without our moms? Most of us would probably agree, uh, the person who's most clearly demonstrated the unconditional love of God to us has been our moms. So let's stand together. We're going to pray together in line of again setting our attention on Jesus together. But the Lord said, in all things, be thankful. And I think together as a church family, we can quickly say one of the things we are thankful for is for our moms. So let's pray together. Father, above all things, we thank you for Jesus, the Redeemer, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, our, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We do pray that when we sing and when we give and when we pray and when we study your word, all things together this morning would be leveraged by your spirit unto us seeing, knowing, loving, treasuring, and glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our prayer. And Father, we pray for today, this day that is Mother's Day. It's full of gratitude, and, and then we're also aware that it can also be a hard day for a variety of, of reasons. So, Father, we're asking your grace would be sufficient. Whatever our individual circumstances, that this would be a day that we would rejoice in the Lord together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand together. I'm going to read to you this morning from 3 John, where we're going to begin. It's right before the book of Revelation. Small little epistle. Well, Jude is, but then Third John right before that. And then also uh, for your help a little bit later on, you might want to be finding the Gospel of John, chapter 19. So Third John is where we'll begin. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 4. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Let's pray together. Father, um, we see here the Apostle John saying the great desire of his heart is that the next generation walks in truth. So, Father, if our hearts are set on something other than that, our, our own well-being, or, or just whatever else our heart might be set on other than the next generation walking in truth, help us, free us, change us. I pray you would give us Apostle John-like concern as a church family for the next generation, 
When you use this morning to wake us up, to correct us, to liberate us from the great spiritual apathy of our day, I'm asking you, God, to raise up some men this morning, whether it's their role as a dad or their role as just a follower of Jesus, that they will live for something more than what so many men are encouraged to live for today. Lord, may your grace raise up some gospel-centered, Jesus-loving, next-generation-serving women in our church who are not going to live as unto themselves. They're going to live to leverage their lives, and they'd be able to say right with John, I, I don't desire anything more than seeing the next generation walking in truth, and we need your help, God, because the truth is so casually, flippantly discarded in this generation. A fighter verse that said, be fervent in spirit. Would you use these moments to that end? That there be some people today that are not quite as fervent in spirit as we can be. Stir us up, move us on. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is going to be a, sort of a standalone sermon. I've been praying for uh, many weeks now about this sermon and using today, Mother's Day, to talk about the next generation. I do want to say on the front end, this is not a sermon for just parents, and I want to demonstrate that from John chapter 19. So you've got that in your Bible, but I want you to see something with me, because every time I see 3 John verse 4 written or in a book or on a stationary card or quoted, it's, it's not typically written, quoted, referred to, accurately so I want to read verse 4 to you again and then ask you a question John the Apostle John writes in 3rd John verse 4 I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth now here's the quick question who are the children that John is talking about is he referring to his own biological or adopted children only? That's the question. The answer to that is no. He's not talking about children in the sense that this is John Jr. We know that because look where we began, to the elder, and he's talking to Gaius, whom I love in the truth. And then just so we understand, read verse 6, who testified to your love before the church. And look at verse 9, I've written something to the church. So who are the children that John is talking about? He's talking about the children in his local church. So here's where we're going to begin. We all ought to have gospel concern for all of the next generation. Amen? Not just the children growing up in my own house or just my grandchildren or just my nieces and nephews. The church, as we'll see, is a family. Amen? Now, when John, this is him writing towards the end of his life, and he's saying, at this stage of my life, he's an older man. Just think of this concept. The older man in the church is saying, I've got no greater joy than to know that the children who've grown up in my church are walking in the truth. That must mean that he has had gospel concern for these children all along. So that's one of the things I, I want to really say to us as a church family is I want to call you to have deep concern for one another. If you're at church and the other members are just sort of some people out there, or you go Sunday to the next Sunday and 
and aren't really thinking of serving, loving the other people in the church, then, then we're missing something. Amen? I mean, we're a body of Christ. We're a family. We're in this together. And I think John learned this lesson at a particular time and place. That's why I asked you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19, which has what I think is perhaps the most heart-rending scene in the Gospels. It's about a mom and her son. To be a mom is to suffer, amen? It's, it's been said a mom can never be happier than her unhappiest child. And we see right here in John chapter 19, a mother who is going to endure an amazing combination of heartache and healing all at once. And the world is full of this, isn't it? I mean, Mother's Day itself <laughs> describes or, or uh, uh, exemplifies this, right? Today's such a good day and such a hard day. In John chapter 19, Jesus is being crucified and there's a, something that happens that I want you to see. It says in verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. And then we get this phrase, also his tunic. I want you to know that we're here in Gospel of John, and we're talking about big things, and he's been before Pilate, and what is truth, and, and uh, he's let out and being crucified, and all of a sudden, we turn this scene to talking about clothing. It's a little peculiar. And then there's this specific reference to this tunic. It says, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them for... My clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother. So just real quick, we won't belabor this point, but something's going on here that is significant. I mean, what is it? We're talking about clothes and they're casting lots. It's a gruesome scene. We can all agree with this. There's these callous heart hearted uh, Roman soldiers who are passing the time as Jesus is being crucified and they're passing the time sort of gambling for his clothes and then there's this description of this woven tunic so what would be helpful for you to understand what's going on here is in that time and place particularly for a Jewish family of a poor background as we know Jesus grew up in in Nazareth the mom very often when the son was leaving the house her going away gift as it were was a this tunic now, they grew up, or, or, or we're talking about time and places where they, they didn't have, like, multiple changes of clothes, right? I mean, if you've got your home and you open your drawer and you got, you know, you might have did this this morning. Here's, what am I going to choose to wear? They, they, it was a little bit simpler. They didn't say, what am I going to choose to wear? They're going to say, I'm going to wear it with the one tunic I've got, right? And this tunic was sort of, a, it's not quite a t-shirt like we would think of it, but it's the undergarment, right? And so a son would wear it all the time. And so this is a... This is a gift that's very near to the mother's heart that you give to a son when he leaves the house. Sort of a going away present. She'd make it herself, and very frequently while she makes it, she'd pray for her son. And, uh, and now here we are at the cross. And they start gambling over that. You see, a mom like Mary doesn't have a lot to offer her son, but she had this. It's a gift that's worth a lot more than the fabric. You know what I'm saying, right? And now Mary looks down at it, and man, I think it's at that moment Simeon's prophecy over, 
over in Luke chapter 2. The sword's going to pierce your soul, Mary. And here it is. And they're just thoughtlessly uh, gambling for it. And Jesus, you think about this. Jesus is being crucified. He's suffering. And he notices. What a savior, amen? But he notices this is tearing Mary apart. In that moment, Jesus saw his mother. I want you to know, praise God Almighty, friends, you have a Savior who sees you. There isn't any hurt in your life, any heart-rending situation that he doesn't see and know. And if you have the grace to receive this this morning, he sees it from the vantage point of the cross. And look what he does. He saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved. Now, who's that disciple? That's John, right? That's the Apostle John. That's who wrote 3 John, 2 John, 1 John, Gospel of John, Revelation. You did a lot of writing. He had a lot to say. May we listen to it. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, the care of the mom was the responsibility of the firstborn son. That's how it works at that culture. The firstborn son is Jesus. He's about to depart. Now, here's the point. There's a lot we could say from here, but here's the point. When Jesus is on the cross and he sees his mom and he makes provision that she is to be taken care of, who does he ask to do it? Now, we know from the scope, of, greater scope of the scriptures that Mary has other children, Right? But Jesus doesn't say, now go find your other son, James. He'll take care of you. Who does he ask and, and command to take care of his mom? Who does he ask? A, a follower of him. Now here's the point that I want to make. According to Jesus, fellow believers can be and should be more trusted to care for one another than even earthly family. The church, that's us. This is your family, if we're understanding the scripture right. The church, if we're submitted properly to the head of the church, who is Jesus, should do a better job of loving, serving, providing, helping, encouraging, and caring for one another than any earthly family, any earthly government, any earthly system. And I don't know about you, but I find that deeply convicting. So it can't be that we just come and we're spectators and hardly know each other in the church. That can't be how it goes. We want to be a people worthy of the name Jesus. And we demonstrate that we belong to him by how we love one another. So this is the point I'm making at the start of the message. We're going to talk about the next generation and there may be an impulse among some of us to say, well, this message is only for those among us who happen to be in that particular season of raising children. Friends, the church is always in the season of raising children. It's not the responsibility of some of us. It's the responsibility of all of us. Because raising the next generation to love Jesus is up to all of us together. Is it going to take parents? Yes. Is it going to take grandparents? Yes. And aunts and uncles and church family and brothers and sisters. It's going to take all of us together. In the church, no one is without a family because the church is our family. And we must have God's concern for one another within our 
selves. We need invested moms and dads and Sunday school teachers and home group leaders and people who just talk in the foyer because they love you and are praying for you and sharing life together with those growing up. That's what we need. We need each other. And you know what Americans tend to be? Autonomous and self-sufficient. And so we continually carry with us the obstacle to the very thing that we're talking about. This is especially so because I believe we are living in unique days when there are challenges previously unencountered when it comes to raising the next generation to love Jesus. So you track with me for a moment. At the very time when we need each other more than ever, we're more tempted to be isolated from one another. And it's like a double whammy, right? And at this church, our church, we have to combat the temptation aggressively and with great initiative of being isolated from one another by deeply loving each other, by forbearing with one another. That's a Bible word. You know what forbear means? We stick with it. We quit too easily on each other. Get offended too easily. Well, they offended me. I'm done with them. You're done with what? Done with your family that you need to love you and build you onto Christ's likeness? We're not all going to get along all the time. Friends, we need each other. I want to say as a dad, my children need this church if they are going to grow up to love Jesus. I want to start, well, I've already started that night. You said that in your mind. Thank you for not saying it out loud. I want to turn to Psalm 36. It's a passage that informs a lot of my parenting, and I want to encourage you that uh, we want to use it to um, inform what our responsibility and role is. I love children. I love the next generation, but I am not uh, so ignorant to know that Like all of us, they have some things lurking in the heart that we need to be aware of. So we're going to talk about current challenges to raising children. We'll do it fairly quickly. We'll move at a pretty steady pace. So I'm going to talk fast. Um, Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. If you believe that, it's going to inform a lot of the decisions you make in your own life. And in particular with this issue, moms, dads, grandparents, you need to know that precious child that you love dearly, transgression speaks to him deep in his heart. Left unchecked here, Psalm 36 describes what I would say would be the uh, fear for my own children. There's no fear of God before his eyes. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Well, if not for verse 5, friends, we'd have to close up shop and go home. But look at verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. So I've chosen my words wisely on this current challenges to raising children who... Love Jesus. That's my aim. I don't care what my children do in life. If they don't love Jesus, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if they gain the whole world if they have forfeited their soul. And I'm saying my children, when I, I'm not talking about just my children, I'm talking as a John, Apostle John, Third John kind of way, the children at this church, we are aiming that they would love Jesus. So every generation has challenges, but we have literally lived through a cultural revolution of this generation, and again, you might remember the definition of a cultural revolution. It goes like this. What was once celebrated is condemned. What was once condemned is celebrated, and those who will not celebrate are condemned. And this is the generation that has grown up at that time. 
So let's talk for a few moments about some challenges. I want to begin with this one. This one often doesn't come up if we were to think about it. What are the challenges to the next generation? But the first one is this. We live in a culture where young people are encouraged to prioritize friends over parents. Friends over parents. That might not sound like um, a huge warning to you or a huge danger, but think about it this way. If this was all you had to go by and you have anything else to go by, you would conclude that is dangerous. Now, I want my children to have good friends. In fact, it's often been said, uh, show me your three best friends, I'll show you where you're headed in life. That, that is true. But we're living in, in um, challenging days when it's practically assumed that a young person gets to an age where a peer's opinion is more important than their parents' counsel. The Bible says honor your parents, not honor your pals, right? <laughs> oh, this is just the way it goes. That is so unwise. I want to make an appeal to every young person in the room this morning. I want you to know that your parents' love for you is deeper, is wider, is stronger. And they love the real you. Now, they might not uh, be the coolest people. (laughs) Their wardrobe might not be in style. They might be technologically challenged. I mean, you have to turn the television on for them. But they would lay their lives down for you in most cases. And the issue is this. Parental authority is a blessing in your life because in God's design, now this doesn't happen perfectly. That's why we forbear with one another. And some of you come from hard places. I understand that. But God's designed it in such a way that in submission to him, a a mom and a dad reflect his authority to your life. I've shared this story many times with you in the past. I was about 12, 13 years old and was playing wiffle ball in the backyard at my house uh, when my dad walked out. And uh, man, I I remember this like it was yesterday. I'd given him a a Washington Redskins ball cap for Christmas and uh, he was wearing it. And uh, in addition to that, he was wearing a, a really tight V-neck T-shirt. He probably wore when he was in the military, which had been a generation previous to this. And, and then I guess he thought it would be really neat to match the hat with shorts. And so, so the Redskins colors are burgundy, so he had burgundy shorts on that were hiked up in a manner that no man needs to hike up their <laughs> shorts, right? And uh, exposing legs that had not seen sunlight since the Nixon administration (laughs) with feet tucked into the work shoes is like black loafers that he wore to work. And he walked out and I saw him and uh, I just wanted to hide. (laughs) I was with my buddies. I was with my pals. We were playing wiffle ball. And I could see they looked over and and for the most part they were um, good-hearted guys. And so they didn't really say anything, but I could just feel, you know. I was just like, oh, Wow. I'm so ashamed. And he comes clopping down so slow. And it's like, oh, please don't come near us. Please just get in the car. Just go anywhere but here, but here. And he keeps walking by. And he says, well, how's the game going? I was like, Dad, please. I'm so ashamed. I'm so ashamed. But I stand here today, what, some 20-odd, some years later. I say, I'm ashamed. I was ashamed. I'd give anything. He could wear the burgundy shorts, sit down. I'd love it just to talk, right? 
it's, it's, it's uh, short-sighted to think your friend's input matters more than your mom or your dad's input. One of the great, great things you can do as a young person is have long wisdom in mind. It's very rare, but may God help us to instill it. So we live in a culture where young people are encouraged to prioritize friends over parents. Second, we live in a blame-shifting culture. If you notice this, people will not take responsibility for anything. And coinciding with that, there's a great lack of gratitude. We complain about everything. We think we deserve things without working for them. We're too easily offended, too quick to think we're not getting what we deserve. Friends, open up this, but you know what we deserve? We deserve eternal hell. That's what we deserve. So if you've got something other than that today, you're doing pretty good. That's what we deserve. We need to raise children who learn what it means to work hard, to be diligent, to be faithful, and to be thankful. Third, we live in a promiscuous culture. We live in a generation where purity is a punchline. Friends, a child who watches just television today will see on commercials what was once not allowed in an R-rated movie, and that's true. Fighterverse says, be fervent in spirit. Here's what I, here's what I think is true. So many people, young people who are Living in a promiscuous culture, what it does is it quenches the fervency in spirit. That's what happens. Friends, the easy availability to so much that is unholy is destroying any holy appetite a child may ever develop. Some people get to the point in their life that just this, a 40-minute or so sermon from the scripture is almost unendurable because, because their minds have been saturated with so much that is unholy and unrighteous. I want to say to you pastorally, every peer group on the planet has a friend somewhere in it that will help you find things that you don't want your child to find. Just say that again. You, you think to yourself, well, no, 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 not my child. They wouldn't even know where to look. Well, they might not know where to look, but somebody does. I'm just telling you that. I've received the phone call more times than I would like to reflect upon. It always starts out this way. Brandon, it's so-and-so. It's usually a mom. And here's how it goes. Here's how it goes every time. I'm calling you today because I want to talk to you, and that's the point they get, and then they can't talk anymore. There's a catch in the voice. And when I hear the catch, I know what's I know what's coming. I know what's coming. It takes a few moments to regain the composure. I want to talk to you about my son. He's gotten caught up in pornography. He's gotten caught up in looking at things. And I want to know if he would be able to help. Answer number one. Yeah, we can help. But I'm giving you a pastoral warning right here, as clear as I know how, because here's also what I hear every time I receive that phone call. We had no idea. We had no idea. Praise God Almighty, there is freedom, there is forgiveness, there is restoration. But I, I feel compelled to tell you, friends,
that there are things that get in the mind and they don't come out. I need you to know that. I'm saying that to you to um, prayerfully, by God's grace, stir up some fervency and vigilance of spirit. I just go on to tell you, if you want a parent under Christ-likeness, you're probably going to have to be thought of as weird in some ways in your own peer group. And here's let's just call a spade a spade. You know why so many children receive a device? Because their parents have devices and they want to be on their devices, so you get on your device so you'll leave me alone while I'm on my device. <laughs> Here, look at this. Go over there. Go. So I want to go on and tell you, I, 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 if you give a young man a device with internet access before he has the maturity to know how to handle this, you are practically guaranteeing he will develop a pornographic stronghold. I'm just going to tell it like I believe it is. So be careful about thinking, no, 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 no. You don't know my boy. Can you receive the scripture? Transgression speaks to him deeply in his heart. And we are this close, this close to a generation of young men who have no fervency of spirit. And I believe this is the number one reason. So if that's where you are today, I do want to tell you my joy to receive that phone call. I didn't want to make it sound like, oh, here we go again. No, no. First step to getting right is stepping out of the darkness into, a, into the light. Listen to me, the technology of today has made everything, every, everything available. So I also want to say, if you are a young person and you are having this issue right now, boy or girl, I'm promising you it will not lead to life. What might seem exciting or desirable is going to and is taking a heavy toll on your soul. It is training you to look at other people according to the flesh. And you are withdrawing into a dark place and you're losing control of your own thoughts. Scripture says make no provision for the flesh to obey its desires. I believe it's time for the church to stop making provision for the flesh and just saying, can we find some middle ground here? Here's the middle ground. There is none. There is no middle ground. So let's put a few thoughts together from what we've been talking about. If it's a 15-year-old guy and he's really struggling with his thought life and what he, looks, what he looks at and what he watches, who should be the biggest help in his life? His dad, right? But now we've got a whole culture where children don't talk to their parents about the really big things of life. Can I just give you an encouragement? If Jesus is not in it, you don't want it. You don't want it. It's a promiscuous culture. So no one, you might grow up, I, I thought about this the other day, you might grow up and no one else tells you this in the midst of our promiscuous culture. Any sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage is sinful. Cultural revolution. What was once condemned is celebrated, what was once celebrated is condemned, and those who won't celebrate are condemned. Right? Every promise of God is for your good, not for your loss. You can learn that, you can learn that by unfortunate experience, or you can trust it by faith. The promiscuity of uh, this generation trains you unto lust, not love. Lust is always in a rush. Love is patient. Lust is always harsh. Love is kind. Lust is always self-seeking. Love puts others first. 
And you are invited. You are invited. In fact, this is why Jesus is on that cross when he's talking to Mary to begin with. He's going to take it all on himself. I'll take the sin, the guilt, the shame on myself in order to set you free. Amen? We're invited by Jesus into a life that's really living. Well, we've got to keep moving. Number four, we're living in a technological revolution. This might be the uh, number one question facing us today about the next generation, right? I know it's the question I get a lot. What do we do about social media, for example? When can my child be on social media? When can they get Instagram or Snapchat or so on and so forth? I, I, I find that it seems often we're helicopter parents over non-essentials and then just really nowhere to be found over the essentials of what shapes a child's soul. So the research is worth doing, friends, right? There is a reason a young person can't put the phone down. Have you done the research on this? It's called dopamine, right? Here's another word for it. Addicted. Here's what happens. Make a post. We're, we're, just talk, we're talking about the scripture, but we're, we're just talking about straight biology. Make a post, and then you're going to get uh, the dopamine hit when someone comments or likes, and then you've got to go back, and then how many likes do I have? And it rewires the whole brain. Because the comment is about you, and you can't ignore what's about you. And now the loop has begun, and how do we get off? There are four things I'm going to share with you that have been influential in my own decision-making process. I want you to know, as pastor, pastor, where I'm coming from, I love the next generation. Love them. I don't want this to come down as, but, but we got to talk about these things, y'all, right? There are four things that have been influential in my own decision-making process, raising up children. I get the question... When will I give my child a phone or a device or internet access? So here's four things that the Bible encourages us to watch and pray. So I've been praying and I've been watching and here's what I've seen. I have never, ever, ever seen a child get a device and become happier. I haven't. I've seen a child get a device and become more anxious, more stressed, more tethered to it, more withdrawn from the family, more present but not really here at church. I've seen it happen. Hey, we can agree on this. Adolescence can already be a moody time. Amen. Phones don't seem to help. Saw this at first when I was a student pastor. They introduced the iPhone and it was released and I watched. And I'd see a group of girls that were up to that point best friends. And all of a sudden, I don't know what happened, but something happened. And they wouldn't talk to each other anymore. I see more young men becoming more and more isolated and withdrawn. Again, present, but not really present. No fervency of spirit. And I watched as the attention spans dramatically decrease. Blessed is the man who meditates on his word day and night. See, that's what's at stake. That's what's at stake is reflection and thinking and thoughtfulness and meditating on his word. Second, not only have I ever seen a child get a device and become happier, I believe children need a rest and a break from friends, from drama. Amen? <laughs> and phones make rests and break impossible. I really don't want to spend my parenting years fighting with my child over putting down a device. I think in the middle school years in particular, as their brains are developing, they need to rest and a break mentally from the constant distractions a phone or a device can bring. We want to raise, we're talking about raising up a generation that can think, defend the faith. And if you're more knowledgeable about the MCU than the scriptures, well, we've got an issue, don't we? I read something in a book I've never forgotten. The author said in previous generations, a child would come home from school and they'd have a, at least 
12 to 16 hour break from whatever went on that day at school. Anybody have something happen at middle school that when you got on the bus and you got home, you could just go, I think I don't have to deal with that until tomorrow. Now, I, I remember in eighth grade, I don't know what I did, but this guy just decided he didn't like me. And every day I went to the, to the cafeteria, he let it know that he didn't like me. Now, I guess we might call the term bullying today. I don't know. But man, I couldn't wait to get home, <laughs> talk to my parents, what are you going to do, so on and so forth. But, but the book said this. I thought this was helpful. Today, if a child has a device, the whole school comes home with them. I think that's a lot of the reason why kids say today they are more stressed and anxious than ever. Third, that helped me make this decision about technology, is I was doing something on my phone one time, and my eight-year-old child was looking over my shoulder, and they began to tell me how to do what I was trying to do. (laughs) We've all had this experience, right? Here's the statement, Daddy, why are you doing it that way? Well, I thought this is the way to do it. So, so my child, my eight-year-old child is teaching me how to operate the phone. So can I give you an obvious but significant piece of information? They know that device better than you do. That taught me that my child would be able to do something on their phone that I would never know about. Think of it this way. Just think of it this way. Suppose you were going to drop off your child over here at the Golden East Mall today from 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock. They're going to be there those two hours. But having dropped them off, you agreed that once you dropped them off, you would never know who they were with or what they had done. Would any any parent sign up? Okay, I'm, I'm with that. Of course we wouldn't. Back to the mom that I've heard again and again. We had no idea what my child was looking at. Here's the next statement. We had the filters. We had the software. We thought we had the browsing history. But guess what? They knew it better. Number four, best answer. Best answer I've ever heard to the question. When should I give my child a phone? Can we just back up before we go to this? I'm coming from the from the point of believing that my child has an eternal soul and that my child is going to stand before Jesus one day. I want you to know if I hadn't said that, that's where I'm coming from. My aim is not that my child would be popular. My aim is not that my child would succeed in some worldly uh, uh, way. Uh, my, My desire is for my child to love Jesus. Every child is going to grow up and one of two things are going to happen. They're going to love Jesus or they're going to love the world. So I don't want to Get in the mold, and here's the Baptist preacher who can't get with it. I, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the condition of their heart. Transgression speaks deeply into the heart, but the Lord's love is steadfast. Amen? So number four, the best answer I've ever heard, I've ever heard to the question, when should I give my child a device, was this. You give your child a device when you are ready for your child to no longer be a child. I never forgot that. Now, friends, I am not saying this morning that every child with a device is addicted to pornography, that they're irritable or withdrawn or involved in secret things their parents know nothing about. I'm not saying every child is. But I am saying there are some who are. Got a phrase today, fear of missing out, right? 
F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. I got a bigger fear than that. That's the fear of missing Christ. Or five, we live in a culture where young people are told to put off adulthood. Especially seems true of boys. It wasn't all that long ago that we asked 18-year-old men to really do some things, right? We're asking 18-year-old boys to do some significant things, some sacrificial things, some hard things, some things that go beyond, you know, winning fantasy football league. If you like fantasy football, I'm not coming down on that. But I am telling you, we need to encourage men to grow up. Take responsibility. Statement now is the 30 is the new 18. We don't expect until you're 30 years old to do what we used to think you would do at 18. So here, parents in a, a church family, we've got to be cautious about giving the rewards of adulthood without instilling the responsibilities of adulthood. Right. Here's the trap. Right. Here's all the benefits of adulthood, but none of the responsibilities. Here's a question. Why in the world would they ever take on the responsibilities? You already gave them everything that they could work for, but you gave it to them, so why are they going to work for it? Right. Now I'm putting off adulthood so that now we're not men, we're boys who still need things done for us. We want to raise up a generation of young men who say, I'm not going to compromise. I'm just going to go with it. I, I know the truth. Uh, have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. And number six, we live in a culture that lacks simplicity. I think this is one of the key strategies of the enemy, right? We're just constantly on the go, on the go, on the go. Go, 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 go. Wake up Monday morning. What's tonight? Well, just go. Just, oh, we, we need to recover a little bit of simplicity. Friends, every time you say yes to something, that means you're saying no to something, right? If you say yes to this, that means you're saying no to something else. And, and often, in our generation, the first things we say no to are the things we should say yes to. I want you to know, I want you to know it's okay to say yes. We're going to have a night where we're at home, we're around the table, we're eating, and we're talking. Right? So it's okay to say yes. Yes, I'm going to prioritize being with my family, being with my church family. One of the most um, difficult things in our generation is what do we say yes to or what do we say no to? It's parental fear of missing out. When John talks about his great joy in seeing his children walking in the truth, if you think about it with me, he's talking about children he had loved and prayed for and worshipped with and taught. In short, he's saying these are children I know deeply. John was an elder in the church of Ephesus. He loved the children in his church. So we've got to be wise about what we say yes to and what we say no to. And parents and grandparents and church family, I want you to know you have to determine the yeses. If you don't, someone else will determine the yeses for you. And you'll go along all life just saying yes to what everybody else said you should say Yes, too. We're going to have to do this quick. Talk about the warnings. I meant for that to be about five minutes, but here we are. So let's talk about some practical ideas. Just some warnings, but here's just some things to build into your life. Number one, be intentional about building relationships that are multi-generational in the local church. That was a mouthful, but I'll say it again. Be intentional. I use the word intentional because this isn't going to just happen be intentional about building relationships that are multi-generational in the local church. Here's what I've noticed about my children. You know where they want to go when they can go wherever they want to go? Guess where they want to go? You know where they want to go. Go on and say it. Where do they want to go? Grandma's house. 
can I go to grandma's house? Can I go to grandma's house? I hear that question 40 times a day. <laughs> Why do they want to go to grandma's house? Why do they want to go to grandma's house? So they know they're going to walk in that door. Here's what grandma or grandpa are not going to do. They're not going to go walk in the door. Hey. No, you know what they're going to do? Eyes light up, turn, arms are open. Do you know where children go? They want to go where they are loved. Right? Here's what we want as a church. When the children, you understand what I mean when I say this. The children say, when, you, when do we get to go to church? Be, because they know when they get there, it's not this. Well, hey, how are you? No, it is. Friends, think about this. Where's this church going to be 40 years from now? Where's this church going to be in 40 years? That instills in us, we, we got to pass something to the next generation. Because I believe 40 years from now, that Rocky Mount's still going to need a witness for Christ. And the children might grow up and they might not live in Rocky Mount. That's perfectly fine. But you know what we get to do? Is, is we, have a, we have a mindset that there's more going on than just our local church. We can raise up and they're going to go plant their lives overseas or in Raleigh or in Greenville or wherever. And they're going to be a huge asset to that church because they were raised by this church to love Jesus. Well, we got to go fast. But, but I am very concerned what I see in our generation where churches are less and less multi-generational and just generational. Just one generation in the church. You go to a church and it's all either older folks or younger folks. That is extremely harmful to the health of the overall church. Older generation edifies the younger generation. Younger generation energizes the older generation. That's how it works in your own family. That's how it will work in our family. So you've got to be intentional. What does that mean? Invite your family, raising children in your home. Invite an older saint. Will you come and eat dinner with us? Now, to do that, you have to say no to something because the world's already said your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday is already wrapped up, right? Already scheduled. So you've got to say no to some things. Come over and then teach your children to ask good questions and speak because I still, I might be blind, but I still really believe another living, breathing human being is more interesting than whatever else is on the screen. I really believe that because God made the human being. God coded the human being to live and breathe and think and have a relationship. So be intentional about building relationships. We don't want to just go to church together. We want to be the church together. It ought never be, it ought never be that there's an older person isolated and alone and unloved because someone younger doesn't take the initiative to be invested in their life. And if you will do that, I will assure you, the blessing will be yours. Number two, always aim for the heart. Always aim for the heart. Friends, if the transgression, Psalm 36, 1, speaks deep in the heart, you can't speak to the behavior. That's death. The transgression, now, uh, is the transgression speaking to the behavior or to the heart? Speaking to the heart, and the behavior will follow. You know what you do? You do what you want to do, right? Real simple, real simple thought. You do what you want to do. So a church or a those that teach the Bible and they're just aimed for the behavior, right? You just tell a young person over, don't do this, don't do that. Don't, 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 don't. That's not what the Bible is teaching. You know what the Bible is teaching? Jesus is supreme and he's glorious. And he's better, he's greater. He's more beautiful. He's more, he's more valuable. It's a lot more than don't do this and don't look at that. 
I mean, if that's what you weigh down the next generation with, guess what? They will say, I'm done with that. I know you said I shouldn't do that, but I want to do that. The only way to defeat a sinful desire is by cultivating a superior godly appetite. You'll make this decision when you go to lunch here in just a few minutes. Get a menu. And you're going to make that decision most likely on the basis of what your appetite says. I'm in the mood for such and such. Well, when a child has a screen and the screen before them says, you can click this, you can go here. Don't worry, nobody's going to know about this. You can watch this. You know how you, the only way to combat that, two things. One, they don't have that device, which is kind of what I've been advocating. Or second, they got a desire in here that says, man, whatever that would lead to, I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather have a mind that I can control. I'd rather have self-control. I, I, I'd rather aim for marriage with one person on my heart than a cluttered mind of a thousand nameless faces that I've allowed access to my brain. We'll do the others quickly. Number three, real simple. You need to set aside time to talk. We get great wisdom from this from Deuteronomy 6. Set set aside time to talk. Where where you're going, as as you're in the house, out of the house, talk about the Lord together, right? So if you've got a carpool and you're taking the kids and every morning you take the kids, set aside time to pray. Just cultivate, uh, talk about Jesus during the regular time, right? So uh, start young. I read in a book when I first had a child that um, that gave great advice. It said, take your children. If It was written to a dad, so I take this, but this applied in any number of ways. If you're a dad, take your child one-on-one out to eat. A daddy-daughter date or a daddy-son fun night. It's just the two of you. You go and you sit and you cultivate in the early years that you're someone who wants to be with them and wants to talk. It's been one of the very best things I've done. And I'm going to just give you real quick these questions to ask when you talk. Number one, ask this question. Is there any way I can be a better parent and just be prepared? All right. Be prepared. Is there any way I can be a better parent to you? It's a good question that when they're four years old, it's a great question when they're 18 years old. Any way I can be a better parent? Now, here's the key. Then you really listen. Right? Number two, is there anything our family should do differently in light of what you are learning about God and his word? It's a great way to just ask, what have you been learning in Sunday school? It's a better question than what have you been learning in Sunday school? <laughs> Anybody been there? What did you learn in Sunday school? What can our family, that, that teaches a child that they have initiative and input. Now, they're not ruling the house, but they're participating. Amen? Number three, good question. Is there anything you should tell me? Is there anything you should tell me? Now listen, uh, you you can't read this on the screen by tone of voice, right? It's not, is there anything you should tell me? (laughs) Is there anything you should tell me? Is there anything I should know about? Sometimes, you know what I get? No. But not always. Number four, you have any questions about anything now here's what can happen unfortunately children have a lot of questions <laughs> you notice this have lots and lots of questions it's exhausting I have questions about everything 
But here's the radar, I mean, here's the uh, warning light. When they stop asking you questions, they haven't run out of questions. They've just been conditioned to take those questions elsewhere. And that is dangerous because someone else will step in to answer. <clears throat> and you know who will answer? You know why Psalm 36 one is so helpful? Transgression, if he's just sitting there, I'll take this one. Mom, dad, you don't want it? I'll take this one. And I'll speak deeply in his heart. Number four, last point. Remember, we are completely, we are completely inadequate to equip the next generation to love Jesus apart from God's grace. So, man, if uh, I've done a bad job this morning, if, if you're leaving here just feeling like, oh, we just got to do more and try harder. That's behavior modification. That's the danger I warned you about earlier. We just got to do more, try harder, do more, try harder, do more, try harder, do more. No, we're not able to do it. We're not able to do it. You say, are you telling me that God has given us, as a church family, a responsibility we are 100% inadequate to do? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because God never gave us a responsibility to do that we could pull off on our own. That's not how the Bible works. He says, this is what needs to be done, and you're completely inadequate. You know who you're going to need? You're going to need me. I'm going to help. I'm going to show up. I'm going to be there. Nobody, not even the Apostle John himself, is more invested or interested in the next generation loving Jesus than Jesus. You might think of it as we close like this. God is raising us while we're raising them. God's parenting us while we're parenting them. Again, I don't mean that specifically just to parents. I mean for all of us. God's forgiving us, teaching us about his grace, his love, his mercy, his faithfulness, his holiness. We don't. We don't raise the next generation out of guilt. We raise the next generation out of glory. So we love the truth. We pray faithfully. That's what we see here in 3 John. Be a joyful, rejoicing parent, not an angry, irritable parent. Be an engaged church member with the next generation. Don't get it in your mind. My days of keeping the nursery are over. My days of helping the children are over. I went, I've been there, done that. You don't hear that from John in 3 John chapter 4, or verse 4, right? And he's an elderly man by the time he writes that. And he's still invested. He's still interested. We're going to stand together now, and we're going to pray together in our time of invitation, sober-minded. <laughs> I invite you to pray. You just got a, a burden on your heart. Maybe you got, your burden is a person. It's a child. It's a grandchild. It's just another child here at the church. You got a burden. You want to seek the Lord on their behalf. Oh, it would be so appropriate I think for us as a church family to respond with much prayer for the next generation at our invitation Father I thank you for Jesus and thank you for the Holy Spirit who's at work among us help, help this message to land appropriately we're not going to raise the next generation out of guilt it's going to be out of glory Just to be prayerful invested people of initiative we really care about each other Give us a heart for the next generation that we see that John had for the next generation. That he learned at the cross, the church family, the church family is the real family. I pray this in Jesus' name.